Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. On today's show, a conversation between the editor of Spin Magazine, Daniel Cohen, and Dan Ozzy, the author of Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore 1994 to 2007. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. From time to time, we have some guest hosts. In this case, it's Daniel Cohen, the editor of Spin. So coming up in just a moment, Dan Ozzy and Daniel Cohen. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey everyone, right. welcome to uh, Spin Podcast, uh, Lip Service. I am Editorial Director Daniel Cohn, and we're here with one of my favorite writers and a Spin contributor, a man who really doesn't need an intro, but we're giving him one anyway. It's Dan Ozzy, the writer, critic, and author of the phenomenal book Sellout that just came out in the past month. So Dan, welcome to the show. I want my intro, so I'm glad we didn't just... Assume that I didn't need one. Oh, I want to hear a phenomenal, phenomenal author. That's right. It's <laughs> true. Anyone who's a cracked open sellout will know that it chronicles the, easily the most interesting time in punk music. I mean, period. Uh, you could, you could debatably, you could say, you know, the genesis of the of the of the genre in the seventies was perhaps the most interesting. But your book really chronicles how commerce and art came together, and in some cases, the serious backlash to that. But first, let's get a little background on you. How did your uh, whole writing career begin, and uh, what's your background? And how will it end? I don't know. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going with that. Oh. How, does, how did your writing career begin, and how will it end? 
um, in a fiery blaze. That's how it'll end. Um, and how it began, uh, I, I actually was working in book publishing. And then I said to myself, wouldn't it be cool if I was the guy writing the book? And then so one day I quit and with kind of no plan, I mean, I had a plan or at least like I had things that I hoped would happen. And um, I just hustled a lot um, and eventually kind of like looked my way into a staff job after a while. And um, fast forward a little bit and uh, fiery blaze. I'm out. I'm gone in a blaze of glory. There he goes. Wait, <laughs> where were you? Were you just freelancing at first and then you got the, the, the gig at Noisy or how did that all come together? Yeah, I was freelancing for a while, um, which was really, you know, like I was, I feel like a struggle, an uphill battle. And then um, I looked out and I wrote something for Noisy and it did well. And then they were like, asked if I wanted to contribute more. And then this guy, Ben, who was the editor in chief at the time, he asked if I wanted to hang out one night. And he was like, why don't you, uh, why don't you like come into the office? Like, two days a week and you can, we'll pay you a day rate and you can just, you know, post what you want. And I was like, okay. And I did that and I did pretty well there. And then they were like, he was like, why don't you come in three days a week? And I was like, okay. And then he was like, you should come in four days. And then it was like, just, just work here. You know, just why don't you just work here? Um, And I said, okay, great. So I took like a full-time gig there, I think in December of 2013. Um, Yeah. Nice. I mean, that's the way to do it. The the old chipping away until they can't say no. It feels like. Yeah. Until like they know your face and then you just are kind of like wallpaper there. You know, they just kind of deal with you. And your musical love has always been punk and then the surrounding genres. Just following going on Twitter and going back and seeing some of your your social media posts. You uh, speak highly of this record store in Jersey, I believe, that's just about to close, right? Is that where you spent many times hunting and digging and finding uh, independent releases? It did close, actually, um, in uh, July. It's it's sad. It was it was open for uh, like a long time, like way before I was even born, I think it might've been in business for like, I think like 40 years or something like that. And uh, yeah, it was this great place in New Jersey called vintage vinyl in Edison, New Jersey or Ford, Ford, New Jersey. And um, it was uh, a big store. And my friends and I, it was only like uh, 15 minutes from our houses. So we used to just drive there and just, they had the whole perimeter of the store basically was like lined with used CDs. And so we would just spend the entire night, like, a to Z going through them and just like filtering them out. And then, yeah, what happened was um, this year they announced that they were closing and not even uh, for like, you know, any sort of like business or pandemic reasons. It was just like, I think the owners thought it was time to retire. And so they closed up shop. And so my friend uh, who I used to go to, uh, I used to go to the store with when I was in high school um, she was coming to visit me in LA and on the way to, uh, Newark airport, they like, were like, well, I guess we should make a stop at vintage vinyl. And they made a stop there and they were pretty much like down to the hardware at that point, just like down to the walls, you know, but on the wall, there were like, um, framed photos of all like the, uh, in-store performances that they had had over the years, you know, and uh, a lot of ones that we had gone to. And then there was one for against me the band against me. And she said, uh, Hey, are you selling this? And the guy was like, I don't think we're selling the photos. 
And she was like, you know, okay, I'm going to see my friend Dan and I would really like to get him a gift. Like he helped Laura from against me write her memoir. And the guy apparently was like, wait, Dan, Ozzy, I really like that book. Like, yeah, you can just take it. You can just take it. And so she, she, she brought me this uh, very terrible photo of against me. And it's like, those of you listening, it is literally a photo of against me from July 11th, 2007. Yeah. And it's just a very uh, unremarkable photo, but it means a whole lot to me because that was basically my, my high school years encapsulated there. Um, And it means a lot that I have that, that photo. It's like literally the only framed item I think I have out here on the West coast, but uh a very thoughtful gift, probably Not the most thoughtful the cover gift. of the book is adorning your walls. No, I have that back in New York. I have this like, no joke, like uh, for our, uh, the, we, Laura and I did like a book launch party in Brooklyn and we got these like big, um, probably like three by four foot, um, cardboard, uh, like posters of the book. And it's like the book cover and like at the end of the night, like a bunch of kids just took them off the walls and and ran with them, which, you know, I would do, too. Um, but there was one and I was like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to take this one. And so I did have it framed in my house. But the only thing is like the photo, the cover of the book is, you know, Laura's face. And it's like this very striking black and white. And so, man, you get up to go to the restroom at like two in the morning and you just like go into your hallway and see that. And you're like, ah. <laughs> so yeah i i love that cover for sure but i don't necessarily miss have it having it like stare at me uh when i'm just trying to get like a snack in the middle of the night that could be daunting when you're half half awake or half yeah. asleep, depending on your point of view what was your first show you went to or it could be basement uh you know anything that kind of like kind of planted the seeds to get this whole thing going um the first you know everybody has like a like a story about you know oh like my parents took me to see like van halen when i was a kid or madonna or whatever like some big arena show literally what happened to me so it's very funny you use that as your example yeah it's it's very common like i feel like those are the two that i always hear but for me uh I, i don't say this to sound cool it's just the way it happened um i don't remember ever going to a show like that i really just started when i was a freshman in high school you know like 13 14 years old um there was this hole in the wall on staten island where i grew up called the joint and it was just a it was just a hall like in a really crappy part of town and um they every friday night they used to have shows there like six bands seven bucks six bucks whatever and uh you know that that was really my first introduction to music there was like barely a stage like there was a little like five inch little platform for the drum, you know, it was just, everybody was on the floor and it was a very DIY operation. And that was like kind of my first introduction to the idea of like, you can just make a band. You can just make a CD. Like, no, you don't have to wait for anybody. I always think of this great line in um, Chris Gethard, the comedian uh, has this book called lose well. And he was talking about the first time he went to a show like that too, in New Jersey, which is probably a very similar experience to the one I had. And he like went up to the merch table and some, you know, like kid who was probably just like three years older than him was just selling cassettes and, you know, stickers or whatever. And he says that he in the book, he like remembers just talking to this kid and looking at the cassette and asking him who let you do this. 
you know, like just, and I think that's such a telling thing. Like when you're a kid, you think music is this like very inaccessible thing where, you know, you have to be on some level to even participate. Um, and just going to a show and realize that like a kid of a couple years older than you just made a tape, just did it, just made it with a Max Hole cassette um, is a really eye-opening thing. And it was for me at that time, I was like, oh, wow, there's the whole time I was like, where is the adult? And you're just like eventually realize like, oh, no, no, we're all doing this together. Like this is our thing. Um, and it was like a very mind blowing sort of introduction to uh, music, I think. And it's funny you say that because there's a lot of that type, a lot of those type of stories in the book where you have the Larry Livermores who wasn't a kid, but, you know, he was responsible, it seems like, to some degree for kids and like other labels like with MCR and that story. And obviously with Thursday, where everyone's just literally the whole DIY culture. And it's just fascinating to me just going through each chapter because there's all these 11 bands are obviously separate, but there's interlocking stories that they all share, whether it be the way they struggled or the way they, you know, kind of had a, you know, a really, really, you know, close to home DIY label that they felt terrible about leaving. And obviously it was some with mixed results, some others. And that I really enjoyed like, you know, the lookout part of it with the Donna's and green day and, and how that all connected. And what did you find in the book to be like the most satisfying kind of Tetris to kind of put everything together like that? Um, or happy or happy at coincidence. Yeah. I mean, like, it's funny. Cause I had this like Excel spreadsheet that was color coordinated that like, you know, the, the, the interlockingness of the book is not a mistake. You know, that was like very deliberate. And so, um, yeah, there were like, I had like a color coordinated spreadsheet about just like when I had checked in on certain themes and elements that I had introduced. Um, I don't know, like, uh, what was the most satisfying one? It just, it, there was some, you know, like a lot of the personnel handled like this one guy named Craig Aronson. Mm -hmm. He was an A&R rep and he sadly, he passed away very, a few years very ago. Very prominent throughout. Every, almost yeah. He's, he's like low. My friend described him as a side character who was actually the main character um, because he, he signed um, Jimmy Eat world early on, like before they were even successful mm -hmm. um, at the drive-in my cam against me. And then all these other bands that are not even in the book, like Avenge Sevenfold and whatnot. And um, so, yeah. So like just seeing that one guy and his musical taste and the impact it had on this generation was really interesting, but also too, you know, like um, Green Day, I mean, like it cannot be overstated how influential Green Day was on this generation and you know when laura and i were working on her book um she was telling me like she just remembered in such great detail the first concert that she went to which was green day on the dookie tour and uh how you know just seeing them was like oh i want to start a punk band you know it was the impetus for against me basically and um so when i heard i when she told me that i was like well <clears throat> that's the alpha and the omega of this story right green day and then some punk girl sees them in Florida and then she like starts a band. And then 20 years later, they signed to a major or 15 years later, whatever they signed to a major label. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's why I always see it as like one story. Cause to me, green day and against me are kind of kindred spirits and bookends of the whole narrative. It's the whole Gilman street uh, scene also. And Max, I didn't realize how, 
I mean, I guess I did realize, but seeing it in print in front of you, the maximum rock and roll, how, you know, vicious it could be towards a band like Green Day or even to Jawbreaker to in that chapter on the boat. It was just like, I don't think today that a publication really has the literally, you know, the life or death importance that to a scene like Maximum Rock and Roll did. What did you find about that publication that besides, I mean, obviously from the people we know, it's uh, from, you know, just from doing this, it's, it was back then it was to describe to everyone. It was the Bible. If you, if they didn't like you, if you sold out, if you went to a major, you, you better be ready because they were coming out. Do you see that anything like that having the influence that it did today? Uh, not now. Um, but to answer your question about like, what was the most sort of uh, surprising, you know, yeah. like one, number one, I should mention if anybody's interested, uh, all the, all the issues of ma maximum rock and roll are, are, um, archived on, uh, the internet archive, I think you can go and find them. So like you can download every issue of maximum rock and roll. So I spent a lot of time like reading old issues. Um, and, uh, but on top of that, um, one of the most interesting things that I thought or that I learned was, you know, I had always, I had always known that, jo that maximum rock and roll was pretty vicious to jawbreaker once they turned, you know, once they went to a major and um, I had always assumed that it was like a really antagonistic uh, relationship that they had with them. But when I talked to the band themselves, I was surprised to find that they were like, no, I mean, like we still hung out, like we were still friends, but publicly they kind of had to toe that line. They had to scorn us and it didn't really affect our relationship. Like we still played board games with them, but it was just like publicly they had to they had to do it, you know, and it was just, we were just casualties of it. So that was a really interesting thing. Like, cause again, major labels, maximum rock and roll. A lot of times I thought of these as just sort of like, uh, you know, unified presence that I didn't like a unified presence that I didn't really have a face to, you know, uh, it was just like, you just think of maximum rock and roll, but yeah, like hearing about the people who ran it, who were just friends with jawbreaker was pretty eye opening to remember like, yeah, no, these were just, just decisions made by people, you know, it was, it, it's just funny. Well, not funny. I guess the green day was probably sucked that last show at Gilman in particular, where how uh, they weren't treated very well. Let's just put it that no, way. I don't think that's right. I think, I don't know if it comes off in the book like that, but I think it was, it, you know, I think at that time it was like a playful ribbing because yeah, they did get they did get banned from Gilman, right? Um, but you have to keep in mind like between them signing and them putting out Dookie, you know, I, I don't I don't think anybody at Gilman Street assumed that Green Day was going to become this like international phenomenon. I don't think Green Day themselves probably assumed it at that time. It was just like a rule that they instated. And it wasn't necessarily even like it was it, Green Day was the impetus for it. But the rule about having no major label bands was just a protective mode. And, and I think Green Day was hurt by it at first. But then, like, you know, they understood why. Um, so I, I don't think it was like super mean spirited at first. I think it was kind of like, guys, <laughs> you know, like we wish you well with the major label thing, but like you can't come back here. And I, I think 
you know, I'm sure it was a hard pill to swallow, but I don't think at first it was like as mean as people maybe assumed it was. What was your favorite chapter just from a learning standpoint and getting stories that you never knew before standpoint? Um, you know, the, the jawbreaker one was so like mythical. I feel like in the punk scene about that, first of all, the album, dear you is like this very mytholo mythologic mythologized, um, album where people thought that there were like hundreds of guitar tracks and they thought that it took like X amount of time, whatever. Um, and then also too, like the, the myth as to why Jawbreaker did it after they said that they wouldn't for so long. So just to talk to those guys and get like the real, you know, at, at this point, they're far enough removed for it that they're not like making excuses. Um, so that one was like, like a really eye opening one. Cause I feel like I got to, to, put down a lot of arguments that people have been having for like 30 friggin' years or 25 years, you know, the blink 182 and the at the drive-in ones are pretty gripping too. the blink one for obviously opposite sides of the coin type of thing where getting anything with blink and hearing about, you know, how they were, you know, I'm using this in quotes forced to do press as kind of the favor to getting them on the tour was it really stuff like that. It just really was interesting to see how San Diego was separate from the LA scene and even to a lesser degree to punk, the OC scene from that time and had no qualms about just making the jump to MCA. And they basically saved MCA. It seems like with how they were doing with, in terms of relevancy and Mark just seems like he was a fun guy to kind of get all that uh, info from. And yeah, Mark, even hearing Mark, Scott stuff, pushing back on Mark and Tom with Epitaph was interesting too. Yeah. Um, I, I really liked talking to Mark um, because, you know, I feel like I, and I t he actually asked me to do his podcast recently. And I told them him this, which is that I feel like a lot of people like him who have had like long careers where they've had all these big achievements and keep, keep going a lot of them are like weird about not wanting to talk about things that happened forever ago. Cause they're like, Oh, we want to talk about our new record, you know, like whatever they're promoting now. Um, and I get that totally. Um, but Mark was really cool in the sense that I was like, Hey, I want to talk to you about 1996. And he was like, great, let's go. You know, like very accessible night. I feel like when you get that famous, um, you can very easily become a shitty person in a lot of different ways. Um, but Mark is just, it seems like a pretty nice, approachable, well-adjusted, famous guy. Um, and the blink chapter, it's funny because that was the last one that I wrote and I was kind of down to the wire and I was really grateful that that was the last chapter I wrote because I had kind of had the chapter writing down to a science at that point. Um, and I really was in a like crunch for time. And that Blink-182 chapter came together so fast and partly because I had it, like I said, had it down pat, but also too, because it was uh, just fun. You know, it was a, a fun chapter to write. Like it was def it's definitely the most lighthearted one. It's totally. the only one that includes, you know, bestiality and right. fart jokes and everything like that. So That's it was, it was definitely like a, a, a fun one to end on where it was like not you know, I have the, I have the driving one is probably my favorite one in the book, but it's heartbreaking. It's, it's oh, tragic. It's, it's, it's probably it's pure, the most heartbreaking of any of them. Just it's just such a fast unraveling. Um, yeah. and that was very difficult to write. Uh, I, it, it was, it wasn't like, uh, it, it was fun to write because it was, they gave me so much good material, but, uh, just, 
you know, not a, not a, not the story that it's probably the opposite ends of the story, like the, the opposite kind of story, right. Where, you know, Blink was able to maintain and just shot into the stratosphere, but at the drive-in was just crushed. They were just doing too much too fast and it, it, it killed them. So kind of like opposite stories back to back on the, and that on those chapters. Um, yeah. But they at the drive-in thing. It's just now it, living through it and note thinking about how important they were in 2000 2001 is one thing but now looking back 20 years later and revisiting that reading it it was just like oh just they were probably the biggest what could have been of all yeah and it's funny to think of also too um how fast that was because in hindsight they seem like a big band but also between putting the album out and basically completely collapsing, I think it was only six months. Um, and it should be mentioned too, that up until that album came out, like they really did not get a lot of attention. And then that album came out and it exploded. And again, like they shined so bright for six months and then exploded, you know, um, it was a really, it was a really fast, a really quick glimmer um in in music history that they had sometimes with a band like that it's i i find it it it's easy to wonder what could it what what you know it could have been but it, maybe it's also safe to say maybe this was how it should have been because at some point with those guys it seemed like with the, the disparate personalities that marked that group it was going to explode at some point and yeah, I mean, the, the could have been, interpersonal could have been a terrible album that did it or they could have gone out this way. It was just wasn't going to end well. I think it could have been a lot worse than like interpersonal uh, bad blood. I, you know, they told me like we could like one of us was going to die if we kept going on the way we did. Um, and I believe that because when they were just telling me, you know, like another thing about that band is they get so um connected to how many um, substances that they were using at that time. And I, I think the tendency at that time was to just take it as like, oh yeah, they're just a bunch of wild, you know, partiers. But I don't even think that was necessarily it. I think they were under so much pressure that they were 24 and self-medicating the best way, you know, and the way they played too was like so physically taxing. Um, and they were just at this schedule, which was just crushing them too. So yeah, like, of course they started doing painkillers and stuff like that, you know, like that's, they were in pain, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, doing those shows with the, with the high energy was not, I mean, no, I mean, it's for the, it's for the, the very strong muscled and strong minded to do that night in and night out that you can get burned out really fast. The Thursday chapter though, the thing that I the best I the best sto story within the story I think was how uh, when Lior Cohen went to that the show at Roseland and realized everyone knew the words and realized how screwed the music biz was. That's kind of a subtle. It was kind of a subtle pivot in the book to the I think the next part because seeing how these execs really had no clue of the importance of downloads and illegal downloads and streaming, which guilty as charged back then too with Kazal LimeWire etc. You knew every single word of every song you wanted to know, but it did make you want to go to the shows. It made you want to be a part of it. Did you see that kind of as the, you know, the inflection point sort of, or maybe like when the lightning struck the clock tower? For the yeah. Music? Well, yes. I mean, that's very intuitive. I think that that was listed in my um, 
you know, in my color coordinated Excel spreadsheet of like just marking when, you know, one of the themes was like kind of the downfall of the old music industry model. Right. And yeah, that definitely was one. It kind of started in the chapter before about the Donna's because the Donna's had this thing happen to them. It was really not their fault, but um, you know, that when the Donna's second album was coming out um, via, what was that Atlantic? Um, You know, they, the labels were kind of freaking out because kids were downloading stuff more and they, the geniuses at all the major labels, uh, marketing departments got together and they decided the way that they were going to combat downloading was dual disc, which was like a double sided CD which had like this album on one side and just crap on the other, just like, like behind like the studio scenes of their, footage. Or yeah. Like and so, and so, you know, like this like webcam shot, like crap. And so obviously that was a big, a big tank. And then the next chapter, yeah, is Thursday. And we are Cohen sees these kids like, and it just doesn't translate. Cause they're like, wait, we're selling, we're not selling that many CDs. And yet all the kids know the words, like, how is it? And you could see like this, like Titan of the mu- music industry had this moment where he was like, this is getting taken. This is changing. And also too, like something that I tried to like, uh, maybe I should have done this more explicitly, but I was trying to point out too, that like, while like LimeWire and all this Kazan music downloading stuff was becoming very popular at the time. Uh, this scene was like ground zero because for it, because like, oh, if kids could like figure out a way to not give money to Island Def Jam or some other big major label, they were going to do it. So, of course, like a band like Thursday, you know, was prime downloading territory because kids just didn't want to support that label. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, that's one thing that I feel like maybe I didn't express explicitly enough is that this scene I feel like accelerated the uh, the illegal downloading model faster than most other genres of music. But I feel like it was though by by that scene just being there. It's like it was aha. I feel like it was just like you, if you could put yourself in these the suits' position at a show like that at a venue like that. As a reader, you could tell that in judging by their reaction that something was amiss for them. But all, another big point was the MCR opening in for Jimmy World show in Pennsylvania. And you were there, right? I was, yeah. I went to that um, just by happenstance. And I, I actually don't even remember uh, my cam opening. And it's funny because I when I, I talked to Zach from Jimmy World recently and I asked him, I was like, but this, I just want to ask you, this is a, a rare, you know, long shot, but is there any chance you remember that show like, my cam opened it was actually like a pretty seminal show in the in the course of their career and he's like you know i wish i did i think i think i had like my wife there at the show so i was like entertaining and i don't really remember that so like yeah it's 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 weird that like a moment like that for zach i'm sure was just probably another day in promoting bleed american right but then it accidentally became like the one of the most important nights in kicking off the career of My Chemical Romance. I just found that for them in particular, it was just interesting to see how, you know, the ambition and like kind of the, you know, of Mikey and kind of how Gerard, you know, with the whole 9-11 stuff and how he had art and like how his career progressed and hearing it through their manager too was just, it was just interesting overall how you incorporated other 
people into these band stories. But that one in particular always stood out to me because it gave just a, a very clear view of what the band stood for and how much and why people care about them. Yeah. And, and that one was a, a tough one to write because um, my chem more than probably any other band in the book is the most um, archived, most studied. Like what I mean is like every single second of that band's career has probably been documented by the MC army. You know, those, those kids just like are so meticulous and, you know, uh, every little detail about that band's history. So I, in a weird way, I knew like I almost couldn't put one past the goalie on that one, you know? And, and I did, I, it was daunting. Cause I was like, well, what ground can I really uncover here? And I remember when I was interviewing Jeff Rickley from Thursday, who would work with them, he mentioned, he was like, you know, Sarah Lewitton, their first manager. He's like, I, I remember thinking at the time that she was not a great manager, but in hindsight, like she did so much and to, to minimize her contribution would be a mistake. And so I was like, huh, I'm going to go talk to her because I had really not seen her too much in things that had been written about them. Um, and she, she kind of like lives over here. Um, and I just went to her apartment and interviewed her for a long time. And she had so many memories and photos. And in addition to being their early manager, she like had a high school fling with Mikey and it was yeah. just, you know, she just had like a lot of insight. And to me, that was like my way of unearthing something that maybe even my chem fans had not. And the, the other thing too, that I, I tried to do was like talk to fans. Like I talked to this woman, Cassie Witt, who is like a big MCR um, archivist. Um, and she, she had like so many great insights too, because so much of that band's success has been, um, due to the uh, support of the fans, like the rabid support of their fans. And so like, I kind of thought I would be doing a disservice to the story if I did not get their voices in there as well, because they're kind of, it sounds cheesy as hell, right? But they're kind of like a sixth member of the band. Um, so of course I had to talk to talk to them as well. And the other thing that also stood, not, I don't remember if it was them or not, but writing the note about that they were going to a major that became a thing. I mean, in the early 2000s, I remember that. And then seeing it in the book, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember when these bands had to sort of kind of but not really apologize for signing. And yeah, they all had their like different reasons also. for it. Sorry, no, but it was just cool to see to like you don't see that anymore. So it's kind of funny, not funny, but it's kind of, you know, like, oh, yeah, I remember when the when the whole victory thing with Thursday happened. That was a thing. And. It's just it was it's just a great, you know, the whole book in general is just a great look at that period because it was like literally, you know, standing on one of those treadmills like at the airport and it's moving, except for it's not moving at like one mile an hour. It's probably moving at like 40 miles an hour with how fast everything was changing and seeing, you know, I feel like 94 to 07, you kind of got everything. Was there anything you felt like you didn't get that you could have? Um, you know, like people have been asking me about like specific bands here and there, but you know, the one thing that like, I do feel like I didn't cover was in between this, uh, shifting, um, this shifting sonics that went from like pop punk type of music to more post hardcore type of music, uh, and the emo, uh, there was like a brief time where there was a place there was a slot for ska, you know, um, less than Jake went to Capitol. I think the same year that Jimmy world did, but Craig Aronson again, 
same guy, he signed them and, you know, real big fish had, had the song, which is, you know, basically the, the title of the book sellout. And, um, and so, yeah, there was this like Bree and mighty, mighty Boston's and, and Goldfinger, And so there was like a brief, uh, you know, brush with ska in, in this story that I feel like I maybe could have given more page space to, um, but yeah, I, I did get, I did get everything else I really wanted in there. I just maybe gave ska a brief, uh, too, too cursory of a, of a glance, you know, there's always so many pages, right. That you could, uh, that you, that you, that you got, but it's crazy that this book is 450 pages or something. And I'm like, people are like, how come you didn't get this in there? And I'm like, it's it's a a big book. There's so much stuff in there. (laughs) Like, please, there's something for everybody in it. It was just, but seeing the trajectory, because Green Day was the, the logical starting point. And the funny thing also was that you bring it, everyone's looking for the next Nirvana, even 12, 13, 14 years later. It's like, if you're looking for something of something else, then you got nothing. Just look for something original. That's what a lot of these people. Yeah. Say. I mean, when, when they signed Nirvana, I don't think anybody was like, what were they thinking then? Like, we got to get the next dinosaur junior yeah like what what were the what was the mindset behind nirvana i actually you know as for nirvana does kick off the book with like the you know they're in in the introduction um but i really should read up more on like how or just why nirvana got signed you know it was that guy gary gersh Mm -hmm. who also was he also worked with at the drive-in and stuff um and i just like wonder like i guess it was just based off of pure like allegedly sonic youth uh kim told him like hey you know you should talk nirvana into coming along and they did um but i just i wonder what like it didn't seem like they had very high expectations so yeah without without that being without that like uh comparison of like we got to get the next nirvana like i wonder what the impetus for for getting them aboard was especially when you see you hear them say that about thursday it's like really okay you know, so Gary Gersh is an interesting guy because he's in my book a lot. And I think he even came up more than he made it into the book. But, you know, it, it seemed like everybody that I talked to had a story where they were like, yeah, Gary Gersh met with us and he said we were going to be the next Nirvana. And it seemed like, I mean, Gary is a very like accomplished music business person, but it did seem like whatever record label he was working at, they just like unthawed him three times a year to go like dispatch him to go talk to this band and be like, Hey, you're going to be the next Kurt Cobain. And they were like, wow. Um, but you know, so I don't know how much of that was sincere, but it did seem like that was his role for a lot of the record labels that he worked at. I mean, the Nirvana guy, you know, if, if that's your, you know, your accomplishment, that's a pretty nice one to, you know, put on your wall. Oh yeah. I'd be flexing about that for a good 20 years. So. So what's the next book now? What's what is next for you now that uh, now that it's out? I know it took you several years to do this. Have you thought about uh, maybe a sequel to this even or or part two? Or have you thought about maybe another project you're going to get tackling? Um, I have so much like cutting room floor stuff that I've been putting out via my newsletter. And I would like to make an expanded edition next year if we do like the paperback or something like that. But um, but I also tried. I also started. Uh, trying to write a novel and I've never done that before. And it's very interesting to me because I feel like if you give me all of the facts um, and the quotes and everything, I can arrange it into a neat uh, package where I, you know, tell it 
in an engaging way. But if you're just like, yeah, just make it up. I'm like, what? <laughs> anything? It can be anything. Um, and I almost like am daunted by the task. You know, you could just make it up. What? It's ludicrous. Um, and so, yeah, I've been like trying to do that lately. Um, it's still like in the realm of like indie rock. So I don't feel completely out of place, but it's it's a totally different part of your brain for sure. And tell everyone where they can find Sellout. Oh, you can find it on the Jeff Bezos website. I actually have the great, why don't I drop my website because I have the greatest okay. URL in history. Uh, you can go to sellout.biz and see where go. to buy the book and all of my merch and lots of stuff because I'm just shilling like a sellout that I am. What a paradox right there. <laughs> but I'm one of them. But it is a great book. I highly recommend for you or your loved ones this holiday season. If you want a great book, that'll... That's not only it's it's a very in-depth, but it's a fast read really captures what the mid to late 90s to the mid to late 2000s were like for a punk band. And to say it was chaos would be underselling the word chaos. If you were in a band that had it had the chops, this was the place to be. Well, thanks, dude. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All the best. And let's uh, let's make sure to come on, everyone. We got to make sure this book keeps going. So go to go to Amazon. (laughs) It can't end. Let's go, go to anywhere you can, but preferably in the spirit, the independent bookstores. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, well that was fun. So yeah, from time to time, we are definitely having guest interviewers. In this case, Daniel Cohn, who'll be popping in here and there. So I hope you guys all enjoyed this conversation with Dan Ozzy. Sell out, pick up the book, The Major Label, Feeding Frenzy, that swept punk, emo, and hardcore, 1994 to 2007. Has some great shows coming up for you before the end of the year and early into January. So if I don't speak to you, have a happy holidays. If I do speak to you, tune in for the next show. Thanks and see you soon. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.